We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Please open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28 this morning. If you're new or visiting with us, we take a portion of our morning service and evening service to read a chapter from Scripture. And uh, I guess it was earlier this year we finished, if I believe correctly, reading through the whole Bible, chapter at a time. And so we've restarted that process in uh, Acts as well as Nehemiah. And uh, we have made our way to the last chapter of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 28. If you remember from last week, uh, we read in chapter 27 of the account of the shipwreck on which Paul was a part of and his uh, vision from the Lord to uh, exhort the people to the sailors and the prisoners to stay on the ship. And if they were to do that, God would spare him and the people there. And he did just that. And we pick up here in Acts chapter 8 this morning. God's word says, beginning in verse 1, Now when they had escaped, that is from the shipwreck, from perishing, they then found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed an unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold Remember, it's late fall, early winter months. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire of a viper, a snake came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and, ent and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius laid sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled round and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Patoli. 
where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so when we went toward Rome, and so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum, or a, a uh, market town south of Rome, and Three Inns, also a, a town south of Rome. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had done not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I, I, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Then they said to him, We neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect... We know that it is spoken against everywhere. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So, when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul and had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes have closed, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should, be, should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I invite you to turn your Bible to the Gospel of Luke this morning in chapter 1 again. Luke chapter 1, we completed our exposition up through verse 25, having to do with Gabriel and Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth and the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. 
Gabriel was the angel, the angelic annunciator of that momentous event. He, as I mentioned before, was, uh, appears four times named in Scripture. Uh, there are only a couple of angels named in the Scriptures. Uh, the other one, you know, Michael, the archangel, the chief angel, and Gabriel. Others appear without names. Their names aren't important for us to know. Um, Gabriel may appear elsewhere without a name. Uh, there are a number of portions in the New Testament that mention mighty angels coming, and of course, Gabriel, that does mean mighty, uh, one of God, Gabor uh, of El, the uh, mighty one of God. And in any case, uh, that's who was announcing this to Zacharias and in turn Elizabeth. Um, but now a different scenario unfolds. And we read it in chapter 1 of Luke, verses 26 through 38. This is often a portion that we read at Christmas time regarding the incarnation. Uh, but sometimes I was just, as I was thinking about this, like, why are we studying this now? The studying it off holiday, if I could say it that way, permits me a little bit more freedom to deal with some issues that we might feel aren't necessary or appropriate necessarily at Christmas time to deal with. Uh, more on the apologetic side, dealing with some objections to this text. And so uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to successfully accomplish at least one or more of those this morning as we study uh, outside of the context of really focusing on the Christmas holiday with this text. Starting in verse 26, uh, follow along as I read. It says, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she and some of your translations won't have that last phrase at the end of verse number 28. That's a textual variant. Verse 29, But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I know, do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Amen. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So the text of Scripture kind of bookended this with this time marker of six months. And the meaning of that is connected back to the prior verses where it says that Elizabeth, when she found out that she was pregnant, hid herself for five months. She was so overwhelmed with the grace of God and allowing her to have a child and perhaps the awkwardness of it, the, the health issues that come with pregnancy and all of that, whatever it was, 
she just kind of hid herself away from public view for five months. And so in the sixth month, so roughly six months after Gabriel had appeared before, maybe six and a half, seven, somewhere in there, you understand because of the timing of Zacharias having to go home and the um, announcement or the, uh, after the announcement of the baby's birth, the conception and, and early stages of the pregnancy. So six months later, more or less, Gabriel then is dispatched from heaven to speak again to now a young woman. He spoke last time to an older gentleman named Zacharias, a priest. Now he uh, is gone to speak with Mary, the one who was betrothed to Joseph. It tells us that in verse number 27. Um, she was in Nazareth, by the way, in Galilee. And so you might stop and think, wait a minute, I thought they went to Nazareth after you know, the whole business in Luke chapter 2. Well, they did, but really all they were doing was doing what? Going back home again, because they were from Nazareth, the uh, region of Galilee, north of Jerusalem, and uh, they had to go down for the census and then the birth, and then they fled to Egypt for a little while to save the baby's life, Jesus, and then uh, came back and decided to settle back where they were familiar and away from some of the craziness of Jerusalem politics and Archelaus ruling in the stead of his father, Herod, and all of that, just get away, uh, go out to the countryside and, uh, and live in peace. So they were there in uh, Nazareth. Now, it says here that uh, he was sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin. And it says that a couple of times uh, in the text that Mary was a virgin, okay? That's unfortunately and exceedingly rare among young women today that uh, we've produced a society which doesn't value purity, doesn't value saving yourself for marriage. And I can talk with you about that if that's a concern for you, if you're a young person and, and it's, you've been bothered by that sin in your life or whatever. But my point is not really to focus on that so much as to say this is what she was. And the Greek word that is used to describe her is parthenos. Parthenos which is a word for virgin. Don't get confused by all the debate about, oh, it's just a young woman. You know, some of the odd translations. This is from Isaiah 7:14, a virgin. The word itself has some connection of minor historical interest to that place in Athens. On the Acropolis, there is a structure there. You remember what it's called? The Parthenon, okay? That is the same word as Parthenos. You say, well, it doesn't sound like the same because it's one letter different at the end. Well, it's just a difference in the grammatical case of the word, a nominative case, a noun case, or an accusative case, a direct object case. doesn't matter. It's the same exact word. It's the temple of Athena Parthenos, mm -hmm. the goddess Athena, the virgin. That's what the name of uh, that temple is, Athena the Virgin. So when you say that the, the place is called the Parthenon, that's like saying it's the place of the Virgin. It's the same word that we read here in Luke. And here's where the apologetics come in that I mentioned earlier. Because the unbelieving world is always looking for an excuse to dismiss the Bible. I thought I should address for just a brief moment the whole issue of 
parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis, virgin genesis, virgin creation, virgin birth, which is sometimes used this way. Somebody will say, oh, you guys as Christians believe in a virgin birth. That's nice, like a lot of the other myths and legends out there, right? And, uh, and, and you know, someone will say in an informed tone of voice, a condescending tone of voice, there are such things as virgin births today. You know that, right? Dismissing the whole story, the whole historical account of the virgin birth. Now, just to be clear, we believe this is not a legend. It's not a myth. It's an actual, factual event in history. This actually really happened. But about parthenogenesis, sometimes called asexual reproduction, although students in the, in the field will quibble with that and, and try to give it a, another name, but we'll just call it uh, that for sake of our notes here and our message. And it is seen in some lower plant and animal life forms, in fact. And there are some 2,000 species around the world that are thought to reproduce this way. That's a rough number, of course. Obviously, it doesn't have very many significant digits to it, but you know, it's in the th low thousands of, of species that do this. In terms of humans, reported cases, whatever, of whatever sort they are, are exceedingly low. Now, without a father involved at all, usually parthenogenesis in any species in, in humans certainly results in an inoperative or non-viable life form, or very often, most often as I understand it, a tumor called an ovarian teratoma, not a viable human being. Now, there have also been reports of individuals who, as they have maybe accidentally studied, have been found to have some cells in their body that have no paternal genetic information. Paternal meaning father. No father genetic information, only genetic information from the mother. And so there's some strange thing that happened there with some of the cells, some like resorbed twin or something like that. Uh, not quite twin, but uh, a situation which is called in science a chimera. A person that has two different cell lineages in one body. Okay. Now, as far as I know, there are no known individuals, no known humans who are fully parthenogenic except one, Jesus. Now, another branch of the issue has to do with the production of stem cells, which is not at all this really parthenogenesis, but there's ways that eggs can be induced to divide and, and have um, you know, some growth the creation of stem cells of some sort. But when a father is involved, with, that is, when a sperm is involved, pregnancy can occur even in a virgin young woman. And I'll let you read up on that if you're more interested. But, you know, stories that you hear about a young virgin who's conceived a baby and maybe she was in a swimming pool or maybe you know, she was, you know, not having full relations with her boyfriend, but she was having something with her boyfriend, uh, that can certainly result in a pregnancy that's not this kind of pregnancy in the scriptures that we're talking about. 
The situation in Luke 1 does not involve a father. It was not an ovarian tumor, a teratoma that just happened to turn into a viable person. This was rather a one-time miraculous event in which God did something inside of Mary using her egg and a work of the Holy Spirit to cause a conception inside of her. More on that in a moment. This is the foundation of one of the essential doctrines of Christianity, namely the virgin conception and birth of Jesus, which implemented the incarnation of God into humanity. That's all from verse 26 and 27. Verse 28 says, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. So Gabriel greets Mary with the famous sentence, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. And if you haven't, certain translations have it. Blessed are you among women. This phrase has wrongly been used to elevate Mary to a status above other women, even to a godlike status. To the contrary, Mary later says in this portion that we read that she's a maidservant of the Lord. In fact, even more strong than that, she talks about the Lord as her Savior. She is not beyond needing salvation. In fact, she needs it just like the rest of us. She is a servant, not a super special human being. Also, to the contrary, to the contrary of this argument that Mary has some almost godlike, quasi-godlike status, is the emphasis here is on God favoring her. Not that she has some inherent favor or innate status as a special person or even a supposed investiture of favor into her uh, life that changes her into a co-mediatrix with Christ, which is a doctrine that some professing Christians believe. It's a false doctrine. It's a very false doctrine. There is no one, no human, no angel... In fact, that hymn says, no angel could his place have taken, highest of the high, though not even Michael the archangel. Elevating a human being to equality with God is blasphemy. Blasphemy of the highest sort. Mary received grace, as do all people who experience God's grace. God is the giver of grace. People are the recipients of grace of his grace. Now, she is blessed indeed to be able to serve. You need to look at your life as blessed if you're able to serve God. That's a blessing. I was I think I prayed it early this morning or if I didn't hear publicly in myself in my office, I just said, "Lord, thank you that I'm not laid up with vertigo in my bed, that I'm not sick to my stomach." that I can come here to church, that I have a brain that at least partially works. You might question that. Uh, You know, why has God graced us with this? And then we can use that to serve him. I mean, I just visited a guy yesterday in the hospital, my friend that I mentioned in my prayer. He's just kind of minding his own business, working in his yard, and all of a sudden this branch, I mean, this, this is like a branch, okay? This is a tree fell on his head. And they believe that the compressive force of that branch falling on his head traversed all the way down his body and broke his ankles. It's lucky that it didn't break his neck. It's unbelievable. Uh, He can't remember because guess what he had when he got hit on the head? A concussion. He He got amnesia from the whole thing. 
but that's what they were figuring. Now it's possible maybe fell down and hit his feet and he bent him up in a strange configuration, but the way the brakes were, it seemed like the doctors just kind of like kunk. And uh, he, he's in the hospital now for a week. And, uh, you know, Pastor Wickert was just with us last Sunday night. He was recommended to go to the hospital, and they're like, well, we're going to keep you a little while. <laughs> well, that's great, you know, just lovely. But, yeah, we could be in a situation where we're not able to serve. We're not able to have that blessing. But she's favored by God for a special task of service. Mary's primary service, of which we know, was her mothering of the Messiah. She may have had other ministries about which we do not know, but that one's hard to surpass, isn't it? Just imagine, Mary, you moms out there, when you have the little baby, and you're spending hours with that child, and you have the privilege, dad too, but mostly mom, I'm suspecting, has the privilege to be the first one to teach them most of the truths of God's word. Mary teaching the law to Jesus? Can you imagine? How do you think Jesus learned as a boy? Oh, just osmosis through the omniscience pillow? No, he was a human being. He learned obedience. He learned, uh, he learned the word of God. He learned the law so that by the time he... W- His mother and father instructed him so well, and of course he picked up everything. He, by the time he was 12, was talking with the doctors of the law in the temple, and they were amazed at his understanding and answers. That's what mom did for that little child. That's what you can do, young women. When you have children, you have that privilege to do that. Mary, I can't imagine. She's teaching God, the son. That's weird, isn't it? But that's part of the mystery of the incarnation. Theologians, by the way, have pointed out that the verb to bestow favor, if you look at verse 28, uh, the Lord is with you. Uh, And then verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It's that you've been bestowed favor by God. And this is, again, another one of those places where some make a big deal about it and say, well, look at Mary. She's elevated above everybody else. But turn your Bible to Ephesians 1.6. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 6. The Bible says in this verse, verse number 5, I'll start just for context at the risk of opening another can of worms having predestined us to adoption. Okay, that's the predestination can of worms. We're going to leave that can on the shelf, okay? As sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now, that's a somewhat unfortunate translation because it should be something like this, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he bestowed favor upon us in the beloved. It is the exact same word, karitao, to give grace or bestow favor upon someone that is used in Ephesians 1.6 to refer to all believers. That same word that is referred, used to refer to Mary as one upon whom God bestowed favor. God bestowed favor on Mary, and God bestows favor on you. If you're in Christ, he bestows his grace 
and favor. Mary, in other words, is not the only highly favored person on the planet Earth or in heaven, okay? Mary is one of millions who God has redeemed over the years who can say, I have been highly favored by God. I hope you can testify that. Have you been highly favored by God? Highly favored? Given grace, bestowed that grace from God? So uh, this is the beginning of this whole situation. And the angel addresses her again the second time in verse 28. Blessed are you among women. Um, and she was, she was troubled at his saying. Obviously, she didn't have to say anything. The angel could see it on her face. Why, Gabriel's familiar with this. Every time he visits somebody, they're always afraid. How do you like that every time you show up? People are afraid of you. It never happens to me. I hope it never happens to me. Uh, uh-oh, the pastor's here. <laughs> Better behave. <laughs> Oh, boy. I won't tell you any stories, okay? But uh, anyway, so the angel has got to explain. He tells her not to be afraid, similar to how he did with uh, verse number 13 to Zacharias. Do not be afraid, Zacharias. Um, And this is, of course, a unique event for her up to this point in her life. She'd never had this happen to her before, and most of us never will. But, you know, he says, you found favor or grace with God. God is the originator, the giver, the creator, the provider of grace and favor toward us. We do not earn it, trade it, produce it. But he says, you have been given this favor with God. So how do you say, I, I, I've gotten favor with God? Well, one of the ways you can say it is the way it says it here in the text. You have found favor with God. You didn't make it. You didn't create it. You didn't trade for it, swap for it, produce it. All you can say is, I found favor with God. I experienced favor with God. It it came to me, and I am one who enjoys that favor with the Lord. We begin to experience God's grace, and so did Mary. Now, the angel, kind of rapid fire here, almost machine gun, gives a bunch of details. First of all, Mary, you're going to conceive in your womb. Now, that's a very strange announcement, isn't it? I mean, you know, we love to see the announcements, uh, you know, is it, is it blue or is it pink? You know, the revelation of the, of the gender of the child, but this is something entirely different. Now, I personally cannot accept the strange view that God implanted an alien zygote in Mary and thus made her a surrogate for a non-human being or a human entirely disconnected genetically from the human race. Some people have said that. God implanted a zygote into her. Instead, God does something whereby one of her eggs is activated and begins a new human life so that the baby that's born is truly human and truly genetically connected to the human race with character traits, appearance that would look, make Jesus look like he was a son of Mary. Oh, you look similar to your mother, don't you? So you're going to conceive. And by the way, I think that idea of conceive indicates that zygote idea is incorrect. There's a conception that happens within her, not an implantation, not a surrogacy, but an actual thing happens inside of her. Secondly, you're going to bring forth a son. That's easy. But you never... 
you never see any uncertainty about that in the Bible. But God puts these little certain statements in here to help us when people come to uncertainty like they do today. Some doctors today won't say, oh, you're having a baby boy. Foolishness. The Bible's very clear here. You're going to have a boy. He's going to be a young man. In fact, he's going to be a king and all that. We'll see that. So you're going to bring forth a son. Clarity about the gender of the child. You will name him Jesus. His name means, do you know what Jesus means? It's Joshua. What is that, Anne? Yeah, it means Savior. It means Yahweh saves. It means Jehovah saves. It means God saves. It's Joshua in the Old Testament name brought up into Greek. You'll name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one. That's what the angel told to um, Joseph. That's what he said to Joseph. He's going to save his people from their sins. But... But that was explained to Joseph in, in Matthew's gospel, not to Mary here. Just the name was given, no explanation. The focus here is not actually, this is interesting. Where do you see in this text that we read anything about Jesus' role as redeemer? I mean, we know that he's going to be, except for his name, Jesus, that Jesus saves. Other than that, it focuses on another aspect of his person. And that aspect is his kingship. Notice what it says. He will be great. This is in verse number 32. He will be great. Now, also, um, John the Baptist was called great, wasn't he? In verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. So Jesus, too, will be great. But I think great, we could almost claim it's a a bit of an understatement, right? He's going to be great. He's going to be the greatest. He's going to be the greatest. John was... Look at 176, uh, chapter 1, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. John was the prophet of the highest. Jesus was the son of the highest. A little bit of a difference there. Now, he's the son of God. Son does not refer to birth or origin, but to rank or office. And in fact, there's a very important connection in Hebrew theology between um, Psalm 89, for example, is actually the Davidic covenant back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 as well, to this idea of son. God calls the king of Israel his son. He's the father. He will be to me a son. And I refer to those verses in Psalm 89. I'll let you look at those for the sake of time this morning later. But it means not only that Jesus shares the same... Uh, qualities of deity with the Father, but also that he is going to have this role as king in the nation of Israel. God will give him the throne. Look at verse 33. He will reign over the house of David. Actually, end of verse 32. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Just so you are aware, we understand that quite literally, that is, that Jesus is going to reign over a reconstituted nation of Israel on this earth. And then that kingdom is going to continue on into the future. So when you read this, read it with the full import of the words. Don't just think, oh, that's nice, he's going to be king. That means we're all going to go to heaven and have a nice time. 
It doesn't mean that. It means that he is going to rule a reconstituted nation of Israel with resurrected saints. Even David the king will be there and those who are alive at the time of his return and he will have a kingdom. And not only will his kingdom extend to the borders of Israel, but they will be, those borders will be from sea to sea. To the ends of the earth, he will reign over the world, Israel and the Gentiles, first in rank, first in place as king over all the earth. This is the promise that Mary had about her son. And of course, Mary then asks the obvious question, well, how, how can that happen? How can that happen? That's very good, and we could maybe read this in a couple ways. We could say, well, you know, she's expressing doubt like Zacharias did. And I would, I would be more than willing to excuse her from that kind of doubt. She's young, he was older. She's not a priest, he was a priest. Remember, I made those contrasts last time. He, he, he ought to know better. Listen to God and obey what he, what he says and what the angel see. He knows it's an angel from God. In her case... You know, and, and by the way, he has, he's married to a woman, and they could have a child together. It's a little late for them, but they could do that. She's not even married yet. She's engaged or betrothed, as it's called, a very strong kind of engagement, which uh, had to be only, could only be broken off by divorce. That's how the betrothal period was, the betrothal arrangement in, in uh, Jewish practice. Uh, but they hadn't come together yet. They weren't married and consummated their marriage. And so, how am I going to have a, a child? Well, good question. And so the angel responds with a bit more explanation in verses 35 and following. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. In other words, there's going to be a miracle that happens in you, Mary, so that that conception will result in the holy child to be born who will be called the Son of God. In the process of this, the Spirit of God protected any stain of, of sin from passing from Mary to Jesus. Sure. A, uh, another theory that I don't take is that theory called the sin seed theory, that as long as there's no father, you don't have to worry about sin. That's why there was no father, so God could protect Jesus from having a sin nature. No. Incorrect. Okay, Get that out of your mind. Mary is as much of a sinner as a mother as Joseph was as a father. Some, in some way, the Spirit of God had to protect the, the conceived child, Jesus, in the constitution of that child from being stained by sin, imputed sin, inherited sin, any sin. Okay? Sin was not transmitted to him. Mary and every woman are just as much sinners as Joseph and every man are sinners. And Jesus had to be protected from Mary's sin just as much as Joseph's sin, as well as that of all of their forefathers. Don't uh, underestimate the magnitude of this miracle. Whenever a new child comes into the world, that child is from a father and a mother, of course, in every other case than this one, both sinners imputed the sin of Adam directly to that new person, inherits from parents the sin nature made in the image of the parents, and then, of course, acts of sin come out of that nature. But all the guilt of all of that, 
acts of sin, sin nature, imputed sin, that all, all of that guilt is our guilt. That guilt hangs over your head if you're not in Christ. When you get in Christ, what happens is he takes the sin that was imputed to you to himself, imputes to you his righteousness, the grand swap, the great exchange. And then he breaks the power of the sin nature so that you can live righteously. You're not under its domination anymore. And then he works with you little by little throughout your life to extirpate, remove the acts of sin that you do and makes you more and more holy, a more and more better person. Now, as a little proof to our friend Mary that this was all possible, the angel told her, believe it or not, I'm paraphrasing, of course, your cousin Elizabeth, and Mary's thinking, Elizabeth, 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 she's going to have a baby. And she's six months pregnant. And Mary said, and I didn't know about it. How is that possible? Well, because Elizabeth had hidden herself away. She's like, ooh. Um, Mary is thinking, she's, this woman is 60, 70, 80 years old. She's way beyond having children. But she's going to have a baby. And the angel says, she was barren, but now she's having a child. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Well, isn't that the case? How can a man be right with God? I, I'm, I'm, draw, I'm going on a tangent here, okay? How can a man be right with God? You think, if you're thinking in your right mind, you're thinking in God's mind according to his thoughts, there's no way that a man can be made right with God. The sinner shall die for his sin. Right? Ezekiel. You're responsible. You say, well, how do I get unresponsible? <laughs> there's only one way, and that is that there's a substitute who has taken your place and died for your sin. That's the only, only, only way that a person can be made right with God by trusting in Jesus and having his righteousness imputed to you. So God, uh, nothing is impossible with God. So some smart person comes along and says, oh yeah, well, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it if God can do anything? That's a nonsense question, okay? So don't even entertain the question. God cannot sin. He cannot do things that are contrary to his nature. And he cannot do inherently contradictory things because that's not who God is or how he operates. So when we say God, with God nothing is impossible, Obviously, it, that's, there's a context to that kind of statement, okay? Now, uh, Mary gives a very sanctified response in verse 38. Let's read it again before we close. Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So Mary was very remarkable. I mean, she was probably a teenager, most people believe. Young lady, okay? Maybe late teens, maybe mid-teens, but not not any much beyond that. And she says, fine, I'm God's servant, however he wants to use me. Now, that's a strange way to be a servant of God, isn't it? To be a servant of God by being pregnant, to raise a child. And it's an even stranger way to, to be pregnant by this miraculous means. But she was willing. So I ask you the question. She reiterated that she would 
have it to be just like the word of the angel explained. Do you want things in your life to line up with God's word? Do you want your life to look just like God wants it to look? Like Mary did. If you do not want that, then there's something amiss in your thinking. At this, Gabriel departed. His job was done. He doesn't appear again by name in scripture that we know of, uh, maybe unnamed. But when I ask you about Mary, she was willing. And I said, I'm going to ask you the question. What was the question I was thinking of? Here it is. Are you willing to serve God however he wants you to? Are you willing to declare that how the word of God says it, that's how you want it to be? Are you willing to say, look, I am a servant of God. Whatever he wants, that's what I'll do. Are you willing to be like young Mary? A very unusual spiritual maturity in this young woman. How about you? Are you so willing as she was to say, behold, the servant of the Lord? That's me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning to exposit your word, to study it together, to try to understand it better. My prayer is that we will be like Mary, although we don't have this kind of miraculous context in which to consider service. It's much more prosaic, more just run-of-the-mill, everyday kind of Christian service that we're talking about. But are we willing? I pray that you would make us willing if we're not. And any, any shreds of unwillingness that we hang on to, Lord, would you help us to let go of those and be willing to be your servants? We are unprofitable servants after all. You will use us in accordance with your will, but I pray willingly and with desire we should do that. In Jesus' name, amen.